0: Daniel, chapter 4, verse 23, hear the word of the Lord, oh, I'm sorry, wait, that's not the verse I want to read. I was certain that that was it. I was paying very close attention because there was so much to read here and I wanted to pick one. Mm-hmm. It says four. No. four. 33. Okay. 33. Okay. 33. It was half right. Well, the three... Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we spend time... In your word, we pray that um, you send your spirit graciously upon us to be in the preaching of the word, the hearing of the word, the meditating on the word, and we, we trust and are thankful that you say that you will finish the work that you've started in us. May this be glorifying and honoring to you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Daniel chapters two through seven, real people. Real events, it's a real time, it's a real place. I believe these things happened exactly as they are recorded for us in these verses. And at the same time though, it's using very specific events to teach us about big realities and what is true, what is difficult for us to see with our eyes, but is true nonetheless, We learn who is the one true God. We learn who is the king and we learn how he acts in this world, right? So regardless of what you see happening around you, there has never been a point in time in human history where God's enemies were winning. From the time of creation until this moment and for time moving forward, there will never be a moment where God's enemies succeed against God's plans, period. Period. We learn that from Daniel, from Daniel chapters two through seven. Our God will not be mocked. Our God is able to save. But even if he doesn't save, we are not going to bow down and worship the false gods of the world. Along the way, we've also learned about the nature of, of worship. And we began to see that there's only two. there's only two religions in the world. There's the worship of Yahweh and then the worship of not Yahweh anything else it doesn't matter how many different ways you package it there's two ways to worship you're worshiping the creation or you're worshiping the creator there's only one worthy to be worshiped in the midst of all of this and so and along the way just as the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar demanded that all people everywhere serve his false gods so too tyrants always always demand that you worship their gods with them it is worship their devotion is that kind of devotion it's a blind it's a blind faith that is not founded in truth and they force themselves to believe that there is no God. Abortion is the worship of demons. Gross sexual immorality is the worship of demons. Jesus himself tells us that you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve two masters. Whatever that other thing is, is worship. We call it idolatry for a reason. And it helps us understand the, to be blunt, psychotic devotion to the things of this world. It's worship. So the the story of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, it might be the best picture of what happens with idolatry in all of scriptures. It may be the most graphic illustration of the vanity of worshiping idols. In the, in the Bible as judgment for his pride, judgment for his arrogance, for his idolatry, his refusal to repent. We saw last week Daniel even encouraged him. Oh, King, you've got this dream. Repent. Maybe it won't happen to you for a while maybe it'll be longer who knows what the gracious god will do just repent he does not he refuses to do and the scriptures tell us that power and sovereignty were pulled from him so you don't have true sovereignty if someone else can take it away from you so it's a little less sovereignty A little p power was removed he was driven mad driven away from mankind lived with the beasts not just living like the beast, eating like the cattle, it says. His body actually physically looks animalistic. He's got long hair, nails, like a bird's claw, kind of vision, like almost talonish kind of look. And this is the end. This is the end of the prideful. But they don't believe it, right? Because the fool believes in his heart, there is no God. So the prideful thinks that they're going to stand before God in defiance. The prideful says that they're going to live their own life and create their own destiny. And they don't understand that there is no defiance against God in the day of judgment. And there's a critical concept. It's going to be the concept that we're going to focus on today. And it's this, you become what you worship You become what you worship. You become conformed more and more into the image of that which you worship. You become like that which your affection and adoration is focused on. You become what you worship. Clearly you're not gonna become God, but God does tell us that we become more and more into the image of Christ. Formed into his image. That's the goal of our sanctification that God is at work doing. And so we see in Nebuchadnezzar that he became what he worshiped. But we're going to unpack that. And before my children complain, yes, we're going to be spending a lot of time in passages outside of Daniel. <clears throat> Psalm 115, please. Let's turn to Psalm 115 going to help us understand what's really happening with idolatry. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. And here we go, verse eight. Those who make them will become like them everyone who trusts in them take the time to look up the word idol and idolatry in your prophetic books Isaiah Jeremiah Ezekiel in the in the in the Psalms and it is going to be shocking the way God des- describes what's happening with idolatry but we see two key points From Psalm 115. And the first one is the vanity of idolatry. Worshiping an idol is vain. It is empty. It cannot save you. It cannot protect you. It can do nothing. Because it's one of my favorite passages to describe this. I would like to read to you a little bit from Isaiah 44. And it's a story that God tells us. Just keep that in mind. God is telling us this story in Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 9. And he's talking about the person who was creating this idol. Remember, it has a mouth, can't speak, has eyes, can't see, has hands, can't feel, feet, can't walk, it cannot save. It cannot do anything for you. And here is the folly of idolatry starting at verse nine those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile and their precious things are of no profit even their own witness fails to see or know so that they will be put to shame who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit behold his companions will put to shame for the craftsmen themselves were mere men let them all assemble themselves let them stand up let them tremble Let them together be put to shame. First of all, take note the vanity of the idol. A man made it. A human is making this idol and you're gonna put your trust in it? You're gonna devote your life to it? What pride, what arrogance. The work of my hand is worthy to serve. They create something and then they serve it. It's such radical foolishness. Verse 12, the man shapes iron into a cutting tool. He just starts to describe what this fool is doing. First, he makes the tool, does his work over coals, fashioning it with hammers and working with it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. And another is shaping wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god, little g, god, and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this, half he eats meat and roasts and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a little g, god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god they do not know nor do they understand for he is smeared over the eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot comprehend no one recalls nor is their knowledge or understanding (laughs) there's no understanding i have burned half of it in the fire and i baked bread over its coals i roasted meat and i ate then i make the rest into an abomination i fall down before a block of wood He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? God himself is communicating to us the folly of idolatry. Ah, but you say, we're not not creating these little wooden statues anymore. Well, actually, a a lot of people do used to eat in a Thai restaurant, and they had a little crafted idol of Buddha that they put food on every day. They literally feed their idol. The food conveniently doesn't go away at the end of the day. They have to take it and throw it away themselves. But American idolatry is so much worse. We think it's any different. We craft with our hands, and then we worship it. That crazy folly, it is foolish, but God says that they are smeared over the eyes. If you are a fool, worshiping an idol, you cannot save yourself. Your heart is darkened. You don't even recognize the folly. It's important for us to remember. They don't even recognize the folly. I believe intellectually, they can connect For example, let's take that mantra from abortion, my body, my choice. Intellectually, they can understand that there is a separate entity because eventually that entity is no longer in them right? when they bring it to fruition. Intellectually, they can. Eyes are smeared, though. Hearts are darkened. Since they trust in their idols, in their false gods, in their demon worship, it's what they believe in. And when you believe in it, facts aren't going to change that. It doesn't change it. It's a heart that's darkened. We have to remember that. My words spoken to a fool, explaining the truth of them. If God isn't already opening their eyes and opening their hearts, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Why? Because of the second point. The first point is that worshiping idols is vain. The second is Psalm 115.8 said, Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. You become like the idol you make. Why can't you see that you're being an idiot? Because they're like the idols that they've made. Why can't you care enough for the baby in your womb? Because they have a heart like the idol they made. It's a it's art. It's out of their own hands. Why, why can't you see? Why can't you see that there's hell waiting for you? That there's an accounting? Why can't you see that Christ is the only Savior? Because their eyes are blind, because they're like the idols that they serve. They've become like what they worshiped. And you only worship one of two things in this world. You worship the creator, who is blessed forever, amen, or you worship the creation. And you're going to be made more and more into the image of what you worship. That is the significance of the idolatry. So we come back and we look at Nebuchadnezzar and we go, what idols did he serve? Right? And it may it may actually be a little confusing on why he became a beast of the field because he it's not like he worshipped cattle he wasn't worshiping birds he was worshiping gold for certain right he built a giant statue of gold worshipped himself worshipped the power of his own hand got to remember though got to remember you worship two things the creation. Or the creator. And when you worship the creation, when God's judgment comes upon you, you become more like the creation. You become more like the images, as Romans 1 tells us corruptible images. You get handed over. You become like the lesser things. You become like the lesser things the perverse things of this world. God handed him over and he thought that since he worshipped golden idols that that was his future. That's not what really happens. See, we get to learn from Nebuchadnezzar that all the vain things that charm you most, all the things that you chase are dust and dirt and you become like a beast when you serve them. So... Uh, i've already warned you we're going to be at different places in the scriptures i'm also going to warn you right now that there is no deeper theological end no deeper end to the theological swimming pool than things about the identity of our god things about who he is as the triune god of the universe but we are going to swim in them as best we can today we're going to swim in them as best we can today because these are truths that are so beautiful. Just just think for a moment, please. These are truths that are so beautiful that you will be learning about them for eternity. I'm convinced you will be learning about who our God is for eternity. You can't. Even, I'm not even going to ask you if you can even grasp that statement. Our minds cannot even begin to understand eternity, and yet God fills this time without time, it's amazing. Fundamentally, we're gonna remember there's the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your scriptures in the Old Testament when you're reading, that is how they communicated the divine name Yahweh. There's the regular spelling, L-O-R-D, lowercase, Lord. In the Old Testament, that's Adonai. Both of them can refer to God, but the capital is referring to Yahweh Um, And we all, every time we talk about that, we will all, those of us who watch them, will shift to our two little Irish peasants who talk about yah and all the things that they're talking about the way that um, they've dealt with this. But remember, they were so afraid. They were so afraid to speak this that they had to do other things to make themselves not even come close to taking the Lord's name in vain. That's how how carefully the, the, the Jewish people of old viewed this name this name Yahweh. What's interesting about the name Yahweh too though is that in the Hebrew it's not as smooth to say as we say it in English. We say Yahweh is what we tend to say. But the actual it's a it's 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 more of a guttural word. Yahweh. It it requires you to flex to say it properly. Like you're breathing it. It's because it's it means existence. The root word of Yahweh is the Hebrew word for I am. I am existence. He is the self-existent one. And so when Moses at the burning bush asked, "Who will who will I say has sent me to your people, O God?" He says, "I am that I am." Now, I for one can't wait to hear God say his name. How cool would that be in heaven? Because we're not saying, nobody's saying it right. How cool will it be? There's a name, a personal name for God that's written like on Christ himself that we're going to get to say. How beautiful is that? He is the self-existent I am. Now remember, there are thousands of options for serving not God, but there's only one true living God. And so I want you to think about this too. Just I'm going to throw something in as we're going to talk more about Yahweh and His name. Romans 8:29 states that for those He foreknew, He also predestined to be what, conformed to the image of His Son. Want you to keep. We're going to we're going to understand this better. God predestined you not to the beginning of your faith. But to the end of your faith, to being conformed to the image of his son, because remember, you become like what you worship. And so when you call upon the name of the Lord and you're saved, you are to becoming more and more like him. And less and less like the world. Why? Because now there's a list of do's and don'ts you have to do. No, because you are now actually a new creation in Christ. You are actually on the path that the God of the universe who spoke all things into existence has said, I'm going to do this work in you. I have predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Okay? We become like what we worship is true. Because number one, in Psalm 115, God tells us, you become like the idols you worship. And number two, because of Romans 8, 29, he says that's what he's going to do in us. He's going to make us more and more into the image of his son. But there's more, okay, there's more. We're not gonna, we don't need to talk about what happens when you become like an idol. That, we see that everywhere. We see people degrading their bodies and the degrading passions. But what's difficult for us and where the real beauty is, is meditating more and more what it means to become like Yahweh. Okay. Well, let's, let's look what the scriptures do with the name Yahweh. Right. So when you get to the New Testament, New Testament is written in Greek. So how does the Greek translate the Old Testament Hebrew word Yahweh for the name of God? Matthew chapter 3 Helps us understand that So speaking of John the Baptist Matthew 3 says The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord Okay Prepare the way of the Lord Is what Matthew chapter 3 says But he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 Which says Prepare the way of Yahweh Prepare the way of the Lord so in the Greek, they use this word Lord, curios, in the Greek, to connect it to the name of God. That's why I think there's a real special name that we're gonna find out when we're in heaven. Because the Bible's just grabbing images. God is, God condescends to our level so so wonderfully. He gives us words to help us understand. And Lord is the word to understand who He is. But I want us to keep I want us to keep pressing. All right. So we know that when the Greek New Testament talks about Yahweh, he's really quick to use the word the Lord, Lord Kyrios for it. But let's keep going down. And I want us to think about this question. This isn't just a uh, hypothetical question. Who really is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? Let me press that a little bit further. Who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden? Adam and Eve heard the voice of God. And they were accustomed to God walking in the garden with them. Who did Isaiah see seated in the throne? In Isaiah chapter 6, Jesus himself in John 12 1, says that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 18, we hear this no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Is that true? So he's referring to God the Father. Because here's, here, here's the rest of John 1 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only so who is himself. Oh, but the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but Christ and Christ has made God known. No one has ever seen God. So Isaiah sees the pre incarnate Christ seated on the throne. Okay. Okay. So let's keep wrestling with this. All right? Let's keep wrestling. And I am absolutely fine if you walk away going, this Yahweh thing is a little confusing to me. Good. Okay? Because if I can package God in a way that I understand it and the way you understand it, I'm crafting something with my hands. All right? We're just plucking these beauties from heaven. And I'm going to throw him out there and ask the Spirit just to help us have a more intimate, devotional understanding of our God. Because he's the one that we're being made more like in Christ Jesus. A couple other verses to help us. Philippians 2.9. Listen to what it says about Jesus. <clears throat> After Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even... Death on a cross. It says, God bestowed on him the name that is above all names. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What is the name above all names? What's the name that you cannot speak in vain? What's the name of the ever existent always self existent one. With that question in your mind, let's go to Genesis 19:24. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, Yahweh rained down brimstone and fire. But in 1924, the language is interesting. Genesis 1924. And translations have a difficult time with this. So um, let me read to you what is definitely in the text. I looked up these Hebrew words, and the word for Yahweh is used twice in Genesis 1924. Then the Lord... Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. That word is Yahweh, used twice in the Hebrew. So Yahweh declared judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah while he was walking on earth, appearing to Abraham with two angels, and then Yahweh from heaven poured out fire and brimstone. Let's think about this. Was Jesus silent on the issue of homosexuality in the Bible? Whatever else we're going to say about his word inspiring Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, Jesus himself looked upon Sodom and Gomorrah and said, Father, What we heard is true. <laughs> Not that he didn't know already. But again, he does it for us to understand. Father, rain down fire and brimstone. He called it down from him. And Yahweh poured it out from heaven. Jesus got the name above all names. And the Jews knew that this is what Jesus was saying in John chapter 8 when he says, Before Abraham, I am... Before Abraham, in John chapter 8, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. So in it, the Jews come up to them and the Pharisees and the Jews are asking him, Surely you're not greater than Abraham. You're not old. What are you? You're not even 50 years old. You You can't be better and greater than our father Abraham. And this is what Jesus says. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. The Jews took up stones to kill him when he made this statement. They did not think he was a crazy person. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. You know in the story, you know the guy that Abraham is less than? I am. They recognized it. They knew it. Your entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi points to Christ being none other than the self-existent I am. And we know that because we get to see, not through the veil of the law that Moses had, but through the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's beyond comprehension, but Jesus is Yahweh. The name above all names is his. It was his by mere fact that he existed, and yet somehow he also gets awarded the name because of his obedience to death on the cross. That's why the mocker is such an abomination. It's not only Jesus is from birthright. It's he earned it. He earned the title Yahweh because he could swallow up the eternal judgment from God Okay. Now, this is, this is weird. Okay. This is difficult for us. Who died on the cross? Jesus. God died. But who poured out his wrath on the cross? Whose wrath did you earn that needed to be swallowed up? God, God's wrath, which God, Yahweh, think of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's the God that you could see, second person of the Trinity, walk in with Abraham, there's the God that you can't see, pouring out fire and brimstone and wrath from heaven. So as with Sodom and Gomorrah, Yahweh poured out wrath. Like Abraham, the father was asked to take his one and only beloved son and sacrifice him. But unlike Abraham, no one came to save him. Think, think think, as a parent about your child. That kind of pain, nobody was there because God had to do it, because he purposed to do it, and it pleased him to do it, to accomplish his will and redeem humanity. That's what it looks like for true love and sacrifice. That's the love of Yahweh. And at the very same time, Yahweh was on the cross, giving breath to the people who was killing him. He not only stayed off the angels so that they wouldn't come rescue him. He was holding the molecules together of the old rugged cross. All things were made by him, for him, through him. In him all things hold together. That's either true or it's not. So the love and sacrifice of Yahweh is that somehow... He's able to be both the Father and the Son in ways that are beyond comprehension because there is no, there is no confusion between the persons of the Trinity. There is a Father, there is a Son, and there is the Holy Spirit, and somehow, though, they are one God. We are so presumptuous when we think that we can understand these things. We cannot. It's far better not to use the little illustrations and analogies to try to understand God. You know, the egg, water. Water can be both steam and liquid and solid. It's way better not to use those you, you can hear me speaking in an Irish accent if that helps you, Kathy. <laughs> it's better not to use those because that's modalism, Patrick. Because water isn't those three things at the same time. So that's only partly right, which makes it completely wrong. Okay. So I did have this. Uh, uh, I don't have, it's kind of like every family in it that's here has enough for a copy. If you could pass that around, please. So in the fourth century, the church was trying to answer these questions. I want you to know our understanding of Christ and the Trinity is very old and the confessions are very strong. And I gave you this because this is called the Athanasian Creed, and it goes into great details to describe what is true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what is distinct between Father and the Son. So, for example, they are all God, so immortal. They are all powerful, all the Omnis. That's true of God. If it's true of God, it's true of them. Worthy to be praised. The Father, though, was never begotten. There was a time where a child was born because the Son was given in Jesus Christ. There's the Holy Spirit who is said proceeds from the Father and from the Son to do the will of God. Because he is God, so he can do the will of God. Because you can't do the will of God unless you are God. And yet they have differences described in the Bible. Okay. It's rich, it's thick, it's deep, it's heavy. So this is why we got to be very careful in evangelistic settings. I don't ever want to say something that... It's a little too confusing about our God. This stuff about Yahweh, I'm sticking straight with what Jesus says in his evangelistic thing. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Somehow, communicate to someone that there's a son and a father. And then Jesus says, but before Abraham, I am. And the Holy Spirit will begin to make them hunger to better understand the truth. And to dig him in. Or he won't. And they'll be hardened by the truth. And they'll be turned off and given over to their foolish mind. The last passage that we will look at to help us piece this together. Comes from the book of Revelation. Take all your questions on Revelation right now. I know this is. End Times Mania, we're going to take all the other stuff and we're going to set it aside, put a pin in it, save it for later, stick it in your pocket, hang out. We've got something else to learn from the book of Revelation. There's a phrase to describe God that comes out of the book of Revelation. The order sometimes is a little different. Sometimes it says... To him who is and was. Sometimes it says was and is. But it's simply this. The one who was. And is. And is to come. is coming. God is the one who was. And is. And is to come. This is the best Greek way. To communicate. The Hebrew name. Yahweh. Hebrew doesn't give you as much specific on things like time and some other details. And so, like this idea of Yahweh is always existing. And so they're like, how do we communicate that in the Greek? Oh, I know. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He is always. Always was. Always is. Always will be. He is the great I am. Now this is one please turn to. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. The beast. That you saw was, is not, and about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Think about that how the beast is being described here. He was, is not, and is coming to destruction. Compared to who? The God who was, is, and is coming to everlasting life, to an eternal kingdom, to all the things the Bible talks about, that perfect reign of God at the end. This is bringing it all together for us. You are what you worship. Those vain idols represent... Being enemies of God, lawlessness. And in the book of Revelation, we are told that people have the mark of the beast. And who are they worshiping? They're worshiping the one who was, is not, and is coming to destruction. And in doing so, they're rejecting the one who was and is and is coming. You become like what you worship. Two ends. Those are two paths. Worship of Yahweh, worship of not Yahweh. This is why Nebuchadnezzar turned into a beast, an animal, a less than human. He is no longer acting like an image of God. He's becoming less like an image bearer of God and more like the profane, lesser creations of the world because he's worshiping that which is deaf, dumb, blind, and cannot save. Now think about it. Think about some of this. Like we've been learning a lot from the farm, hanging out with Sean. And when you hang out with Sean, you go talk to his chick, uh, talk about the chickens with him. He loves explaining the relationship between roosters and hens. I didn't really quite know exactly what a rooster does all day. Well, i learned what a rooster does all day. Rooster finds hens. And roosters do to hens what makes little baby chickens. And if you have too many roosters, they're all trying to do it all the time to all the hens they can find. And so he had to lessen his roosters because they were hurting his hens. Because that's just what they do all day long. Is it immoral for a rooster to have sex with 20 hens in a day? That's a lot of work, more like ten for his. I think seven to seven to ten is what he's trying to balance it with. Is it immoral for the rooster to do that? No. Because that's what they were created to do. They're the creation. They're not the image of God. Very common in the animal kingdom, right? One male, many females in their groups. That's why I always just shake my head. When you need to watch these Disney cartoons? Simba and Nala. They make it sound like, oh, they have different moms and they forget that Mufasa's everybody's dad in that pride. You know, they always just kind of leave out the, the details of the things. And so why? Why is it then that a mom would hate her baby? Is it ever? Is it ever in the animal kingdom where... Is there ever a reason where where moms, like sometimes they eat their own young. They eat their own babies. When you do that, you become like the creation and not like the creator. You become like the one who is not. He is not. And he's coming to destruction. And that's his end. And you become like him. When you boast in gross sexual immorality, you are becoming more and more and more like the creation, like animals that can just go have sex without consequence. And if all you are is an evolved pond scum, stardust turned into some kind of highly evolved accident, then you can believe that, remember it's a belief, you trust that that's true, even though you have to suppress the truth believe it so that you can justify your sexual immorality so that you can justify your greed so that you can justify your sacrificing babies to demons it's because you become like what you worship and when you worship i am not when you worship the one who is not the beast What's the end for Satan and his angels? The lake of fire. He's coming up. He's running full speed to the lake of fire. He's not going to be surprised on that day. He's got the same Bible we got. He read it and he knows. He knows God doesn't lie. He may not like God, but he knows God's not a liar. He may not like God, but he knows God's more powerful than him. And he may not like God, but he knows that God has declared the end from the beginning and his end is the lake of fire. And so when you worship, not Yahweh, you're worshiping him and the things of this world and your end is the lake of fire, but there's scales on your eyes and you cannot see because Christ is the great I am And so it's so beautiful, actually, that Nebuchadnezzar gets the chance to repent at the end of this. If Nebuchadnezzar can repent, anybody can repent. The stuff that he's responsible for as the king of Babylon, Babylon, which is so wicked that it's used as the picture, (laughs) the clearest picture of God's enemy for all time, the king of that wicked nation, Repented and honored God? You think the gospel goes out in vain? You think that it's not worth it to go proclaim the goodness of our God? To proclaim the power of God unto salvation? At any point in time, any human being, if they still have breath in their lungs, can cry out to God. And remember now what it means to be a faithful witness, the one who is not. And all of those who are worshiping all the vain things of this world hate God, even if they're nice to you because they're still image bearers of God and they still have a God-given conscience. They hate God and they cannot save themselves. And every now and then they know that what they're holding on to is, is empty. Every now and then they know that. And if they do, it's a gift from God to see that. And we pray that that leads them to humbleness. But what about us in Christ? We're not like those who are becoming like the vain things of this world, like the creation, like animals. Being handed over to depravity a homosexual man living 30 years less. You're not acting like an image bearer of God anymore. Now you still are. You still are because you are becoming what you worship. You're not fully there yet. And only the gospel can save. But 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way. We all with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We all are being transformed into the same image. Why must you be born again? So that you can worship the one who is and not the one who is not. Because you're being conformed into the image of the glory of the Father. The one who is seated on the throne. You are actually being made into his image. and Remember Romans. He has predestined you to be conformed to his image. So our prayer is that he complete the work that he started in us. Some of us are praying that he speeds up the process because there's still a lot of us that keeps hanging out, getting in the way of things. God, hasten, hasten my sanctification, oh God. And don't be surprised when you get the fiery trial to do that because being faithful in the midst of persecution is the way that God's kingdom most powerfully advances against the enemies of this world because Christ died on the cross to advance his kingdom. So we're gonna keep praying and acting and living in such a fashion as to honor God in the lives that he has given us and uh, labor that sinners and those lost in sin and idolatry may be saved. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace. We thank you that you are beyond comprehension and when I say that I think of the, I think of a song that I learned you know way back in you know, you're you're too marvelous for comprehension we can't we can't grasp your glory we can't grasp what you've done we don't even understand why you would save us we don't understand how Christ could go on the cross to die for people who were his enemies. And even after you've died and saved us who continue to return like a, like a dog returning to his vomit, we act like the fool, <clears throat> trusting in the things of this world and the deaf, dumb, mute idols that can't save rather than you. We, we have your living water and we drink from broken wells filled with mud and muck. Oh, God, please, please continue the work which we know you promise to do. May our lives today Reflect more and more the glory of Christ and his image and faithfulness. And may that be true of us every day in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our church, and in our community. As we continue on. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.